Good morning. Great to be here, isn't it? He is risen. <laughs> Let's pray before we look into God's word this special morning. Father, we just thank you for the joy that you've put inside of us because we know you and we know that you have won the victory over sin and death. And so, Lord, we want to praise you this morning in that way for that reason. And may our hearts be lifted up, Lord, as we just think about you and what you've done and how much you've loved us and your plan throughout the ages to bring salvation and to conquer sin and death. Bless us this morning, Lord, we ask, as we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, how many times have we run into trouble or have become confused or discouraged because we just automatically assume that our thoughts are the same as God's thoughts? Now, this morning we're going to look at some of God's ways that will remind us how far off the mark our thoughts off are from God's at times. But, you know, we don't have to see it always as a negative thing. We can actually see it as a positive many times, that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. You know, as Jesus hung on the cross on that fateful Good Friday, his last two sayings coming from the Gospel of John, his last two utterances were, number one, I am thirsty. And many think, that there are a couple of phrases in the uh, Psalms that talk about, I am thirsty. think that Jesus was quoting from the Psalms, but really, you know, the idea was he's on the cross, he's been hanging there for nine hours. These are his last two utterances. And it's like the water of life is gone. You know, water is life. And so Jesus is saying, it's gone from me. There's no more life left. And then his last saying is, it is finished. After which he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, you know, some can look at this phrase, it is finished, and see it as an expression of defeat. You know, they could think that Jesus is saying, well, they finally did it. They've been trying to get me for these years, and they haven't had any success, but this time they did it. It is finished. And you know, that's the way the world could interpret it, not having thoughts like God's thoughts. And isn't that the way Jesus' followers felt? I mean, they really thought, that's it. He's gone. And they went into hiding. They thought they were the ones next to be killed. And you can just think, you know, they ran from the garden. And we know that John was there at the end with Mary, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. I imagine the apostles, 
you know, somehow were somewhere around. And they could see him hanging on the cross, being mocked and jeered and ridiculed. Because Jesus' death was a horrible scene, wasn't it? I mean, the life was just crushed out of him. It was, you know, he was just crushed as a person. But we know from the scriptures and from the Spirit of God that it is finished wasn't a, an expression of defeat. It was an expression of the greatest accomplishment and victory that there could ever be in the history of the world. The greatest victory. Because Christ had successfully and bravely and unselfishly completed his mission of conquering sin and death. Who else could conquer sin and death? His death covered every sin for all who in repentance will, to return to, will turn to him and ask for forgiveness. Every single sin throughout the history of the world it will cover for all who will turn to him. And you know what? Actually, turning it the other way, his enemies had played right into their own eternal fate. They played right into God's hands as they allowed, through their evil, Christ to complete his glorious mission, his great rescue mission. They played right into God's hands. And now John goes on to tell us that Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a secret disciple of Jesus, who was actually a member of the high Jewish court, <clears throat> asked if he could take care of the body, if he could be given possession of the body of Jesus. He asked Pilate, and Pilate said he could. And then along with Nicodemus, who was another secret disciple of Jesus, also on the high court, they placed Jesus in a new tomb that had never been used. You know, it was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And wrapped his body in linens along with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. You know, basically Jesus was given the royal burial of a king. And so as his enemies thought it was something that was just going to make him turn into, you know, this, this low life and criminal and, and, you know, fake person, he actually was buried with the burial of a king. Because God's ways are not our ways, right? And his thoughts are not our thoughts. So, you know, here's what we have so far. Jesus', Jesus utterance of I am finished to many may sound like an admission of defeat, but to God and those who have spiritual insight, it is absolute, complete victory over death and sin, which no one can ever defeat and has captured everyone that has ever lived. And as the world saw Jesus as only shameful and horrible, fit, you know, his death fit for a convict, his burial by those who knew the truth was one fit for royalty. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. <clears throat> for as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now we move to the last day of the week. No, actually the first day of the next week, right? In John chapter 20. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Apparently she did not really enter the tomb. She was looking down into it, it says. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back, the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, I want to make two points from the verses we just read. <clears throat> Beside the point that John was letting us know that he could run faster than Peter. <clears throat> John says that the cloth that, that had been wrapped around Jesus' head was still lying in its place separate from the linens that were around his body. Now, some have, think, have thought about that, like, you know, Jesus' glorified body, he, he sat up and he just went right through the cloth. Uh, I think a better answer is, <clears throat> it's proof, you see, there, was a, there, there would be a, you know, some gossip going around and some uh, reasons given why Jesus was gone that, grave robbers came and stole the body because that was something that did happen. But when you have the head cloth right where his head was and you have the linens right where his body was, and it's, it's kind of neat. It's not just all you know, dragged out of, the, out of the tomb. Then it's much more likely points to Jesus basically just sitting up, taking off the head cloth and walking out. And then John says when he entered the tomb after Peter had blown by him, he saw the grave clothes and believed. So now John, he sees the grave clothes and he's starting to kind of entertain the thought that, wow, maybe he rose from the dead. And it says there that they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what we're seeing here, the disciples were convinced that Jesus was dead, and that was it, right? When he, when he died on the cross, they thought, this is the end. He's gone. You know, we've lost whatever that was. But now John, as he sees Jesus gone from the grave and the clothes lying there, he's now starting to entertain the, the, the thought that, wow, maybe he is alive. But he still hasn't put the pieces together yet 
that it's matching the scriptures. He hasn't put the whole big picture in that Jesus was trying to tell them from the scriptures. The prophecy that Christ would rise. He's just kind of barely starting to put, you know, just try to figure things out. So we can see from this account that the disciples are still pretty fuzzy on what's going on. They're learning, you know, step by step. And we know several times in the Gospels, as Jesus is nearing the time of his crucifixion, he mentions to his disciples that his enemies are going to capture him, kill him, but he will rise from the dead on the third day. I mean, he told them just straight out, didn't he? But his disciples never knew what he was talking about because they just didn't have any category in their minds that, that could fit into. Rising from the dead? Three days? Enemies capturing? You know, they, they just didn't fit. So Peter and John see the empty tomb. It says John saw and believed. But at this point, they still hadn't put the whole picture together completely, seeing how everything fit with the scriptures. All the way through, when Jesus was with the disciples, he would point back to the scriptures. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Peter tried to stop them, and Jesus says, put away your sword. How else can the scriptures be fulfilled? And that was Jesus' concern all the way through. Well, <clears throat> when we, we hear that John and Peter didn't really yet understand the full story of it, it shows us that they did not de deceptively go in and build their story about him rising from the dead because they didn't even put it together yet. So they walked out of there thinking, what? People would accuse them of going from the scriptures and just trying to make the scriptures come to life by taking Jesus' body. But actually, they hadn't even put it together yet. And I believe that this gives us an important takeaway. <clears throat> Here is Peter and John. Here are Peter and John. Seeing things, but not able to figure out the whole story yet. And the more that we understand the, the meaning of the scriptures, the more we can understand what's going on around us, and the more that we can understand God's plan. But you know what keeps us from doing that? If we shrink God's plan down to, well, how does this affect me? Uh, why is God letting, me, letting this happen to me? Then, you know, we get ourselves into a lot of trouble, a lot of disappointment, a lot of self-centered navel-gazing. For you scientists, that, that term is called Omphaloskepsis. I'm sure most of you were thinking that. But it's a, it's navel gazing. It's a, it's over preoccupation with ourselves. And you see, that's what's happening so much today because that's our culture. Our culture is me, me, me. And so people think when they think of God doing something, they think, well, how come He did that to me? Or how come He let that happen to me? And the more preoccupied we are with ourselves, which is the way the world wants us to think because it helps them sell more things to us and it gets us more dependent upon them because 
The more we think of ourselves, the less we're into God's ways. Because God's ways are not our ways, are they? But God's ways will bring us much more peace and joy and delight eventually. But our ways that are opposite of God's ways will lead us to worry and feeling, feeling like we've been cheated. So John and Peter return to where they were staying, and Jesus appears to another disciple or follower. Look at verses 11 through 18 in chapter 20. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Now, if you, you know, take this as the passage is going, <clears throat> the, you know, Jesus has just made the most amazing, victorious uh, of, of any, any, of all human history, conquering sin and death. And at the very time, the disciples of Jesus are crying and sad. It shows you how far off we can be from what's really happening if we're not thinking in God's ways. Why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. <clears throat> Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he said these things to her. Mary is weeping outside the tomb. She thinks somebody has removed Jesus' body. And she thinks, as she, as she talks to this person that she thinks is the gardener, she says, I will take responsibility for his body. Just tell me where you put him. It was really a, a kind and loving offer from Mary, wasn't it? I mean, Mary truly loved Jesus, very evident from the Gospels. But you know what? She's standing there and has no idea that she's talking to Jesus. It's another example of how far off the truth we can be and not even know it. I mean, they, they knew Jesus better than anybody. She's standing there talking to him. He, and she's sorrowfully weeping over the loss of Jesus. And he's right there in the garden, just having defeated sin and death. In all his power and glory. Well, he's, his glory is hidden yet. Well, I don't know about that. Couldn't, you know, she just thought he was the gardener. But you know, I'm not saying it's her fault. I'm not faulting her, really. I mean, who wouldn't do the same thing if it were one of us? But what I'm saying is, it shows us that we can be so distraught 
and maybe even feel hopeless when we are standing there in the throes of victory. In our own ways, in our own world, in our own circumstances. We can be following God, trusting in Him, then seeing things go wrong and think that God doesn't really care for us. Or He isn't really here to help us. He wasn't here when I needed Him. And I think that's what people are doing today when they turn away from God. It seems like it's become a thing in the church where people are turning away from God. But they're looking at their circumstances that are very negative. And they're judging God by those negative circumstances. They're navel-gazing. But you know, we have to look at the whole plan. It said that Peter and John did not yet understand you know, how to put the scriptures together with Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's the, that's the answer right there, is we have to learn to put the scriptures together because they take us beyond what we can see. And you know, Jesus tells Mary not to hold on to him because he hasn't ascended to the Father yet. And then he tells her, go tell my brother, my brothers, I'm ascending to the Father my father and your father, my God and your God. Now, I believe what he's saying there is, <clears throat> excuse me, sort of metaphorical. You can't hold on to me as if I will be here with you continually like I have been these last few years. It's going to be different now. I'll be ascending to the Father to be with him. But in the future, when the kingdom comes, then we will be together again. And when he says, my father and your father, to my God and your God, he means because of his victory over sin and death, his followers that, that come to him, that stay with him, they are in close family connection with God the Father. He's bringing them into the family. They become brothers of Jesus, brothers and sisters of Jesus. So Mary tells the disciples that she has seen the Lord and all that he said to her. And then we see Jesus appear to the, to the group of disciples. Verses 19 through 23. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And you know, the disciples are, I'm sure, thinking, okay, they killed Jesus, they'll come after us next. And right in that midst, when they're hiding from the Jews, scared of the Jews, Jesus comes in and says, peace be with you. <laughs> his ways are not our ways, are they? <clears throat> after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Sounds kind of scary to me. <laughs> After what Jesus went through, as the Father sent him. And he says, peace be with you. That's because his peace is a lasting peace into eternity. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. <clears throat> so here are the disciples with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. 
Jesus appears before them offering his peace. And we know that they're not out of physical danger yet. But he's offering them God's peace. And the disciples were overjoyed because they were seeing Jesus. But then again, he says, peace be with you. Tells him he's going to send them out like he had been sent. He's definitely talking about a different kind of a peace, isn't he? <laughs> it's not a peace like, okay, all troubles are gone. Everyone loves me now. He's talking about a peace that is not dependent upon outward circumstances. And I think that's the key. He's talking about an inner peace that stays with us no matter what circumstances we go through. Not that we won't ever be troubled, not that we won't ever be scared, but underneath it all there's this peace, this living peace inside of us because we know the Lord that has conquered death and sin. And we know his future plans for us. And his God is our God. And his Father is our Father because of the death of Christ and the resurrection. An inner peace. Peace in times of danger or chaos or loss or rejection or sickness. A peace that transcends all circumstances. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is the peace that the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 4. So <clears throat> I want to finish by looking at Philippians 4, the first four, well, verses 4 through 9. The Apostle Paul says, and you know all the stuff that the Apostle Paul went through, beatings and hunger and, you know, jail and everything. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Don't be anxious, but send those up to your, in your prayers to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, this is what we fill our minds with, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. <clears throat> That's uh, one of those things that seems to be a lot easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, how in the world do we rejoice in everything? Making his greatness, our gentleness, evident to all. Not being anxious about anything. Is it really possible to not be anxious about anything? Well, it's a journey, isn't it? <laughs> 
We're, we're aiming for a spot way down there, and we're just right here right now. And we just take it a step at a time, growing in our faith. And he says, you know, think on things that are pure, righteous, holy, just. And it's a decision to allow God's word to fill our thoughts and decisions and actions. You know, the apostles, Jesus told them, I said, and you know it already, he told them a number of times that he was going to be captured, imprisoned, killed, and rise again on the third day. <clears throat> but they hadn't grasped that yet. And you know, I don't blame them for what they've been going through, but we have the scriptures and we can grasp those things. We're in a much more advantageous position, aren't we? We can know all the things that they went through. We can grasp through the scriptures, you know, the character of God and how powerful it is and how faithful he is and the love of Jesus that he went to the cross and paid the price for our sins. You know, it comes down to knowing God's ways that are not man's ways. And it's refusing to allow the world to shape our thinking. We can't let the world just kind of like suck us in to their mindset, to their thinking, even though their message comes across all the time powerfully, and they're very good at it. But we have to continue to stay with God's ways. Then God's ways can become our ways. And his thoughts can become our thoughts. All because Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. Let's pray.